101. Is the Lars Larson Show? Our beloved Republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Lars, no. Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. I almost lost my wife, my '67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. Welcome back. It's a pleasure to be with you, although it pains me to tell you, it's not going to be a giant surprise, but it pains me to tell you that the very, very green White House of Joe Biden, the very expensively green White House of Joe Biden has been working on a secret plan that involves tearing out some of America's best renewable energy that cost billions of dollars to build, and they're going to tear it out and they're going to throw it away. And they're doing it all in secret, even though there are now members of the United States Congress who have sent a letter to the White House, uh, to a part of the White House, the Environmental Quality Commission. And they have said, hey, by the way, only the Congress has the right to do what you are negotiating and conspiring to do. Because, you know, the White House has a problem with going beyond its authority, going beyond the statutes, going beyond the Constitution of the United States. But let me get into the details of that in just a moment. First, welcome to the program. Welcome to Honestly Provocative Talk Radio. And glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you happen to be a naysayer, I get people who disagree with me almost every day. And God bless them. We put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. If you'd rather send an email. Email, send it to talk at LarsLarson.com. And if you want to vote in our Twitter poll, we put up, and I say we because I write some of the questions, my great producers, three of them, and I'm very thankful for all three of them, uh, Donovan and Joel and McKenzie. Uh, we all write the questions brand new out of the day, out of the news of the day. You can find the Twitter poll question at Lars Larson Show on Twitter or X if you prefer. You can also find it on my website at LarsLarson.com. But let me tell you about this plan. And it has been apparently in the works, in secret, behind closed doors with everybody from the White House to the people who are involved in this decision saying we are keeping this a secret. We will not tell the American public. We will not tell the United States Congress. And what does it involve? Well, four Republican members of Congress have now sent off a letter to the White House, to the federal government and, and the Biden administration. And they say, we are demanding to see the secret plan, and that's the way they described it, secret plan that Joe Biden and his friends are negotiating with groups for removing four of the Snake River dams. Now, those dams produce about 3,000 megawatts of power. And I want you to just absorb the delicious irony. You've got a White House that demands that America must spend hundreds of billions of dollars to build green and renewable and sustainable energy. Okay, Joe, we get the idea. What about the green, renewable, sustainable energy we've already got? The stuff that American taxpayers have already paid billions of dollars to build to harness the energy out of those river or rivers. Because I don't think this will be the last time they talk about tearing out dams. But they said, no, we're going to just simply tear them out. And you say, well, what's that going to cost? Well, the costs are, are numerous. Number one, 
it's going to cost you the 3,000 average megawatts that are generated by those dams. That's number one. It'll take out flood control. It'll take out irrigation. It'll take out transportation. And it will take a multi-billion dollar asset owned by the American public that arguably could stay in place as long as you maintain big dams. They could stay there till the end of time. And you're going to simply tear them out. And that's going to cost billions or tens of billions of dollars to tear out a multi-billion dollar asset. It's like taking a perfectly good house and tearing it down. And then you say, what do I do without a house? Well, when you tear out the dams, you're going to have to replace that power. That's going to cost more tens of billions of dollars. It absolutely makes no sense. But here's what's happening. Joe Biden, a, a president who has been so anxious to please all of his greenies on the far extreme left side of the Democrat Party. These are the folks who believe that nobody should be driving a gasoline or diesel powered vehicle. These are the folks who don't want us using even even the cleanest of fossil fuel energy like natural gas. These are the same greenies who reject the idea of nuclear power, reject the idea of natural gas. And of course, they won't even think about the idea of burning coal cleanly or harvesting natural gas out of the ground or taking uh, oil and turning it into diesel and gasoline and everything else, they can't tolerate anything that burns. And they have demanded that America switch to a green form of energy. And yet at the same time, they brought lawsuits saying you have to tear these dams out. You have to wipe out this valuable hydropower resource and there is no direct replacement for it. So not only is America not going to dam any new rivers or create any new hydropower, even though that is the ultimate kind of renewable energy. Think about it. You know, water evaporates off the oceans, comes inland, falls, goes into the river, runs through the dams and makes power. Lather, rinse, repeat. It goes on forever. And you've got the machines to harvest that energy. And what does Joe Biden say? No. We're not going to do that. In fact, we want to tear them out. Now, that's bad enough. But then I want you to take this into account. These members of Congress who have written to the White House and they have demanded to know what the heck are you doing? Oh, well, Joe Biden's Council on Environmental Quality, which is in the directly in the executive office of the president. So this isn't just a federal agency that Joe Biden controls because he is the executive in our three branch government. I mean, he controls all the federal agencies, but this one is actually right inside the executive office of the president itself. So for Joe Biden or anybody else to argue, well, Joe doesn't know what they're doing. I mean, this is a small issue. You know, why would he pay attention to that? What they've done is the green environmental groups have filed lawsuits and the lawsuits have been put on hold for the last couple of years because the plaintiffs in the lawsuit have said we're willing to settle out. We're willing to cut a deal uh, in which we get what we want and you give us what we want. We win uh, and you lose. So that's how it works. And part of this deal has apparently been at least six months of secret negotiations behind the scenes with none of the players included. The American public is cut out, the power producing companies and even the nonprofits that produce electric power in America. They're all cut out of the picture. They're not told what's going on. So the White House, it appears, is planning to work out a fait accompli. They want to cut a deal and have it all done and then say to the American people, there it is, we're tearing out the dams. And then they'll go to Congress and say, by the way, it's already a done deal. We just want you to put a rubber stamp on all of this and take, and again, 
This is the big thing. Number one, the American public is not being consulted. Their representatives are being kept in the dark, and they have now demanded an answer from the White House. Number two, we own those resources. We, the American people, own those dams. We own the rivers. We own the power they can produce or not produce, given what Joe Biden wants. And if Joe Biden were a president who actually took reporters' uh, questions, you'd be able to ask him, Mr. President, if you're arguing for green, sustainable power, why is your office, your White House office, directly negotiating to tear out thousands and thousands of megawatts of power? How does that make any sense? But these days, all you can really ask Joe about is what's his favorite flavor of ice cream, or he opens his mouth and says something crazy. In any case, glad to be with you, glad to take your calls at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. In today, we've all heard this. In a rocky political climate, he's the steamroller. This is the Lars Larson Show. That makes a lot of sense, a lot of nonsense. Right, you're bloody well right. You know you got a right to say. This is the Northwest Nonsense. How much longer do we have to sit for this nonsense? That great moment every day where Lars brings you the cold, hard facts without any liberal wokeness from the daily dead fish wrapper or mainstream media bias. You know, when it comes to strikes, ugly behavior surprises exactly nobody, even teachers' strikes. After all, how many labor unions get to threaten your children to win bigger paychecks? Monday, Portland schools made a hopeful offer to the striking teachers. The teachers walked away from the bargaining table, didn't even bother to offer up a counteroffer. Instead, the union and its supporters blocked the Burnside Bridge, jammed up traffic heading into a holiday, and vandalized property. Do you trust the education and safety of your children to that bunch? I remember covering my first teacher strike, and that was a long time ago. Mistaken for a substitute teacher, I heard language from teachers that would make Hunter Biden blush and saw windows smashed and rocks thrown. I guess times haven't really changed. Kids have now been out of school a dozen class days in Portland schools. It seems likely the teacher's paid vacation will last well past Thanksgiving. The union already admits its original demands of $200 million more than the offer they were made was ridiculous. They withdrew it and said, how about 80 million more? That tells you that even they admit 200 million more was a big fat joke. Their latest move? insisting that parents have absolutely no say in class size. One of the items the school district wanted was to include parents on the committees that would decide how they manage class size and how those limits are set. The union said, absolutely not. We're not letting any average citizens, no non-teachers, on those committees. They want much, much more money. They will demand to be paid for the days they did not work. And sadly, the school board will probably tell them yes to that. And your kids will fall even further behind as the teachers got a big, fat, paid vacation. Like I said, ugly. But your daughter still gets a diploma. 
Even if she can't read, write, or count, and Democrat politicians, they lock down those big union campaign dollars. Glad to get your calls on this Wednesday, heading up to Thanksgiving. Always glad to take uh, your calls and your emails. 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And our Twitter poll today, will citizens in Washington State repeal Jay Inslee's expensive carbon tax scam? I would say yes, I think they will. Yesterday, 420,000 signatures were turned into the Secretary of State's office in Tumwater, Washington. That'll put on an initiative, Initiative 2117, a measure to repeal Washington State's cap-and-trade law that has already made gasoline much more expensive in Washington State. Now, a related email to the strike. Cindy Lubbers at Moen Machinery wrote in, Lars, riddle me this. As you've reported on, the teachers will likely receive back pay for the days on strike and not working. Will they also get paid for working the makeup days the students will need after missing so much school? Double slap in the face to hardworking taxpayers. Cindy, the answer to that is yes and yes and sadly true. Thank you very much for that. And our question of the day, what really happened in the JFK assassination? 60 years ago today, JFK was assassinated in broad daylight. As my friend Charlie Kirk points out, a moment that would alter the trajectory of American history and shatter the public's trust in the federal government. Today, the same intel agencies whose fingerprints are all over JFK's assassination are more unaccountable and more weaponized than ever before. But now they have vast technological powers from universal surveillance to the new tool of AI. When you take on the military industrial complex and the police state, don't be surprised when those in power call for you to be elected. Eliminated. And now, today's Daily Grill. Insane. Are you completely insane? Ridiculous. They get more and more ridiculous. Flat out dumb. You're even dumber than I thought. Who deserves today's Lars Grill of the Day? Maybe you're just really, really stupid. Find out right now. Well, yesterday, right before the, the 10 minutes before the end of the Northwest radio show that I do, we got word that Measure 114 at long last has been ruled unconstitutional by a Harney County judge. Now, that's great news, but we know that it'll be immediately appealed, and the Attorney General has already indicated she will appeal that decision, even though a judge has decided Measure 114, passed by a very small margin, violates the state constitution's protection of your right to own a gun. So, imagine the arrogance of Ellen Rosenblum, Democrat AG of Oregon, who insists the Harney County judge's ruling is wrong. The state will file an appeal, and we believe we will prevail. Prevail's a fancy lawyer word for win. I'm no lawyer, but the Oregon Constitution seems very clear. Article 1, Section 27, I'll quote it directly. The people shall have the right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state, but the military shall be kept in strict subordination to civil power. Judge Ratio's ruling is clear. Quote, Oregon citizens have a right to self-defense, seemed pretty clear from the Constitution, against an imminent threat of harm which is unduly burdened by ballot measure 114. Now, imagine a young lady threatened by a violent beau who wants to buy a pistol for her own protection. She is told that before she can do that, she must, one, take and pass a class, by the way, a class that doesn't exist yet, apply for a permit to buy a gun, the permit system doesn't exist yet, pass a background check, and the FBI has been sticky about that. Number four, get the permit and only then buy a gun after more forms, more approvals, and a second background check. 
And then, maybe months from now, she will get her government's permission to actually exercise her Second Amendment rights, that is, if she's still alive at that point. Or, like so many gun buyers today, something goes sideways in the steps above, her purchase is delayed a long time, or in some cases forever for no good reason at all. Ellen Rosenblum will put the lives of the law-abiding at significant risk and infringe on state and federal constitutional rights. Let me jump right to Jeff, who's listening on the Radio Northwest Network. Hey, Jeff, welcome to the program on a Wednesday, heading up to hey, Thanksgiving. Hey, and we all have a lot to be thankful for. What's on your mind? Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, uh, anyways, Lars, I was thinking, you know, if the teachers were smart, they would have let the, uh, the parents participate in class size discussions because as an adult and as a uh, father, I want my kids taught in smaller classrooms, not larger. So it seems like they just want to argue. And the other well, is, uh, except if they let parents like you in, you might say, well, I want smaller class sizes. And you know what the quickest way to do that is, Jeff? Um, add more teachers. No. You have enough teachers what? right now. To give you Portland Public Schools, and they're a great example, they have 8,700 employees. Would you imagine the majority of those are teachers? Um, no, probably not. No, they're not. Out of 8,700 employees, they have about 3,800 teachers. Would you imagine that all of those 3,800 certified teachers teach in a classroom? No. They do not. Uh, the current, if you took the number of students in the Portland Public Schools, the ones who are on strike right now, and divide the students who go to the school by the teachers, you get a 16 to 1 class ratio. Would you as a parent be happy with a 16 to 1 ratio? 100%. Absolutely. Do you know what the actual ratio is? 22. That's the average, and some of the classes are at 30. Does that suggest a solution? that you could say, why don't we have every single certified teacher actually teach kids? We'd get a 16 to 1 class ratio tomorrow. Oh, and by the way, fire some of the 5,000 administrative employees. That place, like most school districts, is way top-heavy with administration. Get rid of some of them. If you need to add some more teachers, do that. In any case, coming up in a moment, we'll talk to our friends from Willamette Week about the private school-educated union boss who's leading the current strike. And you've got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. words from President Reagan. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. We the people are the driver. The government is the car. And we decide where it should go. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Wednesday heading up to Thanksgiving. And I know we all have much to be thankful for. Among other things, I'm thankful for my buddy Aaron Mush, who is the news editor at Willamette Week. You can find their stories at wweek.com. Aaron, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. So uh, I, I, I would write the headline this way. How in the world did a very elite private school educated young lady end up leading one of the worst teacher strikes in Oregon history? Um, longest, certainly. Um, whether or not it's, well, it, it is, I think, the longest. Has there, have there been a lot of teacher strikes in other parts of the state? I mean, this is Portland's first. Uh, no, I not that I not, not that I recall. They're, they've been short and small, for the most part. I, I, there's a very decent chance this is already the longest in Oregon history. Uh, it's certainly one of the most fractious 
there, there's clearly very hard feelings here, and I think that there's a degree to which the the leadership of Angela Bonilla at the Portland Teachers Association has uh, the Portland Association of Teachers. Excuse me, I don't want to get the acronym wrong. PAT for short uh, has led to some of those acrimonious feelings by creating uh, a sort of uh, I think it was like the word militant is quite loaded, but it is, but it is a, a, I agree with a militant a militant feeling among among the striking teachers that uh, this is a, a, a cause that is worth going to the mattresses for. But what what is the, can you define the cause? Because I've worked at this the last couple of weeks saying, well, they want more money. That's what almost every strike is about. And they want a bunch of other things, but they don't seem very willing to bargain. And they came in asking for 200 million more than the district was offering. And then not too long after that, say, oh, how about 80 million more? So they seem to admit that even some of their initial demands were so ridiculous, even the union wasn't going to stick by them. So what is the cause they're working toward? Well, I think there's the, the the demands that they're making, and then there's sort of an underlying tension beneath that. So the demands that they're making are again the the salary bump. They want a cap on class sizes to make sure that um, that the there are only something like 32 students per class. I'm not 100 percent sure I have the number right, but uh, but there's a cap on class sizes question. Uh, and there is preparation time. In other words, how many paid hours are you going to get to create the homework, et cetera, uh, and prepare your lesson plans? Uh, there are also environmental conditions, like are the, are the classrooms too hot and too cold, properly ventilated, are there mice running around, that sort of thing. Uh, that last one in particular, I think, gives them a great deal of common cause with parents who aren't happy with those conditions either. So those are the, those are the areas of, uh, of contention. Obviously, what they're running into is the fact that the school district only has so much money. Uh, it is shrinking. Less parents are sending their kids to Portland Public Schools. Fewer, excuse me. Fewer. I was going to uh, say you're an editor. You should have caught that one. Go ahead. I should just hang up now and accept my defeat. Uh, but the, the, the pot of money is shrinking. That's a problem. Uh, there's not really more money coming from Salem. You can argue whether or not there should be, but there isn't. So whether you want there to be or not, that that, that miracle isn't arriving over the hill. Um, and and then there's this question, I think, that undergirds all of this, which is that um, teachers are, and this is the point that I was trying to get to, which is that like there's the demands, right? And the fact that those demands are probably not going to be fully met. And then there's this underlying question, which is that teachers are uh, in a mood, like are not at all happy with the working conditions they've been in for a long time, uh, really didn't have a good time during the pandemic. No one really did. Kids are affected pretty well, badly by their year by their year away. But, uh, but hold on, Aaron, they didn't have a good time during the pandemic. They all got paychecks where a lot of people in the private sector got jacked. And then their union said, by the way, we're not going back to work. And they resisted going back to work. So an awful lot of them, let's just be honest about it, got paychecks and didn't didn't have to do the work. And many of them well, ended up doing really things large. like, hey, you, I think I'll... You, you, asked me to, okay. you asked me to say what they wanted. I'm telling you yeah. what they wanted. I'm not, I'm not here as their spokesperson. If you want their I'm, spokesperson, you get on the I wish I could get Bonilla on this show. I'd love to ask her a few questions. But... 
that's is my my understanding. I think this is what this is what makes this whole situation fairly toxic is that everyone, parents, kids, teachers, the administration has had a crummy four years. And so they're bringing into this bargaining table their their grievances from an unhappy period in their lives. Uh, and I'll get in trouble for saying this, but I think some of this is emotional rather than uh, rather than a full rather than the classic uh, seeking a raise bargaining. Okay, so to counter the this is the pug part that bugs me. You said thirty-two. That may be the high end for classrooms in Portland schools. I, the and district I could easily no, be completely I know. Well, but the district so. the district says the average is twenty-two kids per classroom, and you say, okay, is that bad? That ain't bad at all. I mean, there are plenty of times over the last half century that there have been more kids average. They're at 22 average. And then, you know what's really stunning, Aaron? I only have Tillamook High School math to depend on. But I did this math for a caller a, a bit ago. If you take 45,000 kids they still have whose parents haven't fled the public schools and divide it by 3,500 teachers, do you know what you get? You get less than 13 kids, according to the numbers in your story, per teacher. So if you had, with a, a massive administrative overhead of 4,700 people and a minority number of 3,500 teachers, even if you just put every one of those teachers in front of, a, in front of kids, it would work out to less than 13 kids per teacher. So are, is the union saying maybe we should deploy all the teachers so that all of them are actually teaching? Because if you do that... You don't have to worry about class size. 13 kids per teacher should be perfectly manageable, shouldn't it? Except I don't think they want to do that. I have a feeling a lot of those teachers are on non-teaching assignments, which is how you get from 45,000 divided by 3,500 teachers is 13 to an average of 22. And then the teacher saying, wow, there are 30 kids in a classroom. Well, how in the world did you get to 30 kids in a classroom? You got more than enough teachers to do a 13 to 1 ratio with the kids. Uh, I am hopeful that if any of your numbers are wrong, that my readers will instruct me that they're wrong. Otherwise, I'm comfortable with your numbers. Yeah, and so, so, and and how about this? Do we really need four thousand seven hundred administrators, custodians, secretaries, and everybody else? I mean, it sounds like administrative overhead to beat the band. And and I haven't heard the teachers bring up administrative overhead. Oh, no, the, oh the teachers definitely. This might be the this might be the one surprising part of our conversation so far is that you, for once, have uh, have found common cause with the Portland <laughs> Association of Teachers. They would love to chop off like half the administration. They yeah. consider it to be bloated. They consider it to be unnecessary. They consider it to be a bureaucracy. And here's where I find it to be like a little bit odd: is that they essentially are advocating for a bunch of people who are not in their union to lose their jobs. You can argue whether or not that's, a, that's as morally righteous as they've cast their crusade to be, but certainly it puts, it puts them in an interesting position of seeking to cut government fat. Wow, and that is an unusual... Oh, by the way, this young lady who heads up the teachers' union, she went to a school in New York City from age or from sixth grade all the way through finish that cost $60,000 a year. My understanding is that I think a lot of that was uh, was scholarship. She's very uh, whether it was scholarships and she got it for free or not. She got a sixty thousand dollar year education. She's an elite private school kid. No matter who paid the bill, she's an elite private school kid who's now leading the union folks 
who are saying, you got to give us more money. Aaron Mesh, you can find the story at wweek.com. Glad to be with you on a Wednesday, heading up to Thanksgiving tomorrow, and we all have a lot to be thanks thankful for. I'll get to your phone calls and emails next. You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Listen for five minutes. You'll feel better. More with Lars Larson right now. Yes, we know that two teenagers have been booked into jail on murder charges. The allegations say they were driving down the street when they saw a car they liked, so they followed the driver, killed him, and stole his car. Now imagine that. That's our friends at Como News in uh, Como TV News in Seattle. Glad to be with you on the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You know we serve the Pacific Northwest, and I guess. I'm at a loss to explain why the judicial system is incapable, seemingly incapable, of containing criminals like this. So you've got two teenagers, an 18-year-old and 19-year-old, but both under the law, they are adults. And in federal way, they say they were carjacking, they were carrying out home invasion robberies, um, and in fact, in one of them, the guy who is now accused, Al Hussein Drama, 18, uh, Drama and his accomplices held a five-year-old boy at gunpoint while they robbed the victims of their personal belongings and warned the adult victims, tell the baby not to cry as they plundered the residence. Well, now the, one of them has been accused of murder in, for shooting a driver in federal way last month. And what do you think the system is going to do with those criminals? They may actually have some consequences but for the most part, we keep telling teenage criminals you can get away with it until they do something like this and actually take somebody's life. To your calls now. It's uh, Wednesday heading up to Thanksgiving. Let's start with uh, Mike in Happy Valley listening on the Radio Northwest Network. Hey, Mike, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Well, happy Thanksgiving, Lars. Uh, happy I'll Thanksgiving. get right to it. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the city of Portland since the teacher strike has started. Um, we pulled our, our son out of uh, the North Clackamas School District uh, a couple years ago. He is exhilarated at private school tenfold. It's, it's absolutely positively amazing on what uh, the private school uh, uh, has done for our son. And the signage that I saw at some of the intersections next to the uh, Portland Public Schools really blew me away. I, I think everybody knows what WTF stands for. Yep. I Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Yep. Yep. I couldn't believe what I was seeing on some of this signage. I'm going to end it with one thing, Lars. I recommend that all these parents within the Portland Public School District walk alongside the roads and pick up pop cans and sacrifice some of their their hobbies or whatever they got to do to send their kids to private school because it is completely out of control. Now, I agree with you, Mike, but let me ask you something. I think the proper approach to this, because for many people, paying even three or $400 a month for some of the less expensive private schools and maybe a grand a month or more per child for some of the more expensive private schools. I mean, there are private schools that will get as expensive as you want. But the, the proper answer is to direct the resources that taxpayers already pay for the K-12 education of kids 
and tell parents if you're not satisfied with the government-run public schools, and you shouldn't be, they produce terrible results, then here's some of the money, not all of it, but some of the money uh, that, that you can take and find a better education for your kids. It'll improve the education for those kids. It'll also force the public schools and their unions to come to terms and say either up your game and improve what you're doing or go out of business. But if you don't do it that way, there will be only a small percentage of parents who can afford the private school and and they'll still be paying for school that doesn't doesn't produce a good result so mike i know there's a ballot measure coming up for oregon that will allow school choice can you imagine the message we'd send to the the public the government schools if we said to them you're doing a lousy job we want parents to be able to go elsewhere if they choose and we're giving them some of your paycheck to do it if if they got that message and they listened we could actually fix both systems right now couldn't we I, I completely agree with you, Lars. I really do. I just don't know how long it's going to take for them to get it together. It, it seems like it's not going to be just a one-year fix, a two-year fix. I, I firmly believe we're talking five years down the road. Oh, I think you're probably right. But, Mike, think about this. for uh, As a comparison, uh, the, the, the cab, the taxi cab system that operated in both uh, Portland and Seattle, the bigger cities tend to have more of the cabs, although small towns have them too. But in Seattle... They had a lousy system. They limited the number of cabs. Everybody who drove a cab made good money because they had created an artificial monopoly. And then along came Uber and Lyft, and the taxi companies had to quickly change what they did and change the quality of what they did. And if they didn't, they just went out of business, which they deserve to do if you won't meet the new competition. I think we could bring about change fairly quickly, and my solution addresses all of the kids your solution, I understand what it is. If parents say, I can't take this, my kids are being cheated, I'm going to go buy them schooling even though I'm already paying for it through my taxes. I just want to fix the system for all the kids, which is good not just for parents, uh, but it's good for all citizens because we need an educated citizenry. And we're losing it right now. We've got, and there was just a video on the other day of a young lady who admitted, she said, she was talking to her boyfriend, and he was talking about how he's a comedian, and he works in both Canada and Alaska. And he says, yeah, I've got to drive up there later. And she said, you drive to Alaska? She'd come out of public, and she said, what is going on in public school? I managed to get all the way through, and I thought Alaska was an island, because on the map, it doesn't look like it connects to anything. And, uh, I mean, there, there are so many examples where the public schools have miserably failed kids. And that's a funny one, but the serious ones are... A state like Oregon saying out loud, you don't have to be able to read, write, or count to be able to get a high school diploma. When the government itself that runs the schools admits we can't have standards because if we had standards, none of the students or a majority of the students would not be able to meet those standards. That is out of control. It has to change. And school choice is a big way to get it done. It's a Wednesday, heading up to Thanksgiving, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. The Lars Larson Show. Quiet, please. You ready for the big solo? In exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. Lars. This is the Lars Larson Show. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Lars. And now. Then we're going to kick the button.
Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. Welcome back to Lars Larson. It's a Wednesday. It's heading up to a Thanksgiving, and we have one additional thing to be thankful for. Yesterday's decision, which I heard about first from our friend Kevin Sterrett, who heads up the Oregon Firearms Federation, I know there was considerable, uh, uh, let's say, skepticism about whether or not a judge would actually decide that Oregon ballot measure 114 that creates an impossible situation and literally makes it illegal for most people in the state, if not all of the people in the state, to buy a firearm at all. That measure has now been ruled unconstitutional by a Harney County judge. Kevin, congratulations. I know this wasn't OFF's case directly, but, but it certainly benefits everybody that you speak for. Welcome back. Well, thank you, and I apologize. I am actually in, in route, so we have a, might lose each other on the cell connection. But, yeah, it's fabulous news and um, a great step forward. But obviously, yeah, we might have just already said, you know, we're, we're so angry, we're going to appeal, you know. Well, tell me this, though. I know I know, we know that this case is going to be appealed to the Oregon Court of Appeals, and we all expect uh, bad things from the very liberal Court of Appeals. But given the, the trial record that was made by Judge Ratio in deciding this is unconstitutional, given the plain reading of the state constitution when it comes to guns in Oregon, can the appeals court find a way to still decide, no, it's actually constitutional? Oh, absolutely. Let, let's remember who's on that court, Lars. You know, we have a judge who said all gun owners are white supremacists, racist, anti-Semites. So they can invent whatever they want to invent. And I fully expect them to do that. You know, if we're successful at the appeals court level, that will be fantastic. Then it will go to the Supreme Court. And God willing, that means the federal case that we're doing disappears. But if it, but does the federal case disappear? Because this is a decision based on the state Supreme Court. But are there some federal issues if the state Supreme Court of Oregon decides that, let's say, uh, the Supreme Court says, okay, it is constitutional despite all evidence to the contrary, is there then a federal appeal of that that's possible to go to the U.S. Supreme Court and say an entire state and its courts have decided they may take away somebody's right to buy a gun? Well, you know, as you know, I'm not an attorney, but I did speak to Tyler Smith yesterday, whose law firm was responsible for that victory, and he told me that if, in fact, the Supreme Court upholds it, then it is no, then the, then the law is dead, and our case is moot because it's a state issue. Uh, I hope he's, I hope that's what happens. I'm not too optimistic, but I have to assume that his assessment is correct. That I, I no one would be, no one would be happier than I am to have our case, case disappear. All right, now how long is all this going to take? And I guess one of the key questions, I saw Ellen Rosenblum, the Democrat Attorney General, come out immediately and say, of course we're going to appeal. And she literally said, the, King, the Harney County judge's ruling is wrong. Worse, it needlessly puts Oregonians' lives at risk. I think that's absolutely untrue. And the state will file an appeal and we believe will prevail. How long is that going to take? And does Measure 114 stay on hold until it's appealed and overturned unless it's overturned does the does the law stay on on the books or does it stay off the books is what it comes down to uh, my my understanding is is the law is dead until they win on appeal which buys us some time as very very important because think of the risk that oregonians have put at put in 
if it if it's enacted. You know, I mean, if you got a chance to read the decision, the judge made it very clear that what does endanger people, it doesn't make people any safer. And so it's it's absolutely critical that this thing be basically be put on hold as long as possible. As far as our case is concerned, the federal case, that could take years. As far as the state case could take, I, I, I presume that could be done within the next year or so. But, you know, it depends. The other thing to keep in mind is that we have a legislative session coming up, and the Democrats in the legislature can write the exact same law, and if it's unconstitutional, it's, it's in effect until somebody sues again. Unless, of course, the Democrats say, we'll write the law, but we'll tweak it a couple of times to make it a bit different than Measure 114. Can they scoot around any kind of unconstitutional decision by doing that, by saying, well, yeah, the judge decided 114 is unconstitutional, but our law is some, somewhat different? No, I don't think they have to scoot around anything. They can do whatever they want. Look, they passed the, quote, ghost gun bill which they knew was unconstitutional, but it doesn't matter. They have the power to impose this stuff until they go to court and lose. And the obvious, their obvious goal there is to just bankrupt gun-owning groups by just having case after case when we have to pay for their lawyers as well as our own. So I don't think anything stops them from writing whatever unconstitutional law they want. The only thing that changes it is a successful court case, which as we've seen, I mean, these, these two court cases now have taken almost a year. Yeah, they have. Actually, um, from the point where they were filed to present is almost exactly a year. I mean, when I looked and I read the, the wording for my audience of, of uh, you know, the section, section one, article 27 of the state constitution, the wording is absolutely rock solid. It says the people shall have the right to bear arms for the defense of themselves. I, I don't see how you get around that. Well, you get around it by ignoring it. I mean, the Second Amendment couldn't be any more clear, but we have 25,000 laws that are unconstitutional. So, I mean, for, to, to, to hang our hat on the fact that something's unconstitutional doesn't matter when you have tyrants in power and you have weaponized you know, law enforcement agencies, who even in this case have clearly had their thumb on the scale to get that so-called grace period that try to defuse our objections which the judge mentioned, you know, as, as a footnote in his decision, but they were playing games behind the scene, behind the scenes, and that that's not lawful, but it doesn't matter. They have the power, they have the, the ability to impose their will on people, whether it's constitutional or not. Well, Kevin, as you've suggested to me before, and I suggested to my audience, I gave, uh, you know, Ellen Rosenblum the grill because I said, imagine a young lady out there who suddenly finds out her ex-boyfriend is trying to hurt her, and she gets a restraining order, which is worth a piece of paper, but she also says, I'll go get a gun. Uh, with 114 in effect, she might be months before she has the privilege of exercising her second member freedom, just own a pistol in her house in case her ex-boyfriend shows up. That That's, that's just outrageous. We don't think it would be months. We think it would be impossible. There is no possible way to get a permit under 114. And even with the FBI giving this grace period, which, as the judge pointed out in his decision, they can take that away whenever they want. Yep. But the fact is, is there's all these other requirements that cannot be complied with. So between that and the magazine ban, you either are not capable of acquiring these things, or if you do, you go to jail for having them. But simple, simple understanding at this point, Measure 114 is dead at this point until and unless the Oregon Court of Appeals overrules. 
That is correct. So that is great news and a reason to be thankful once again tomorrow. Absolutely right. That's Kevin Starrett from the Oregon Firearms Federation. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails. We'll do that in the next segment. I also want to tell you that a Democrat is actually concerned that the White House, for a decade, has been running an illegal surveillance of people's phones, including people not suspected of any crime. We'll get to what Ron Wyden had to say coming up next. And your email. It's a Wednesday. It's the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. to bringing the political heat he's lars larson welcome back to the lars larson show i love it when i end up agreeing with a democrat it doesn't happen all that often but it's happened in this case because democrat senator ron wyden has sent a letter to the attorney general he did it earlier this week and what he had was a letter in which he said i want to express serious concern about the legality of a telephone surveillance program run out of the Biden White House. It is called the Data Analytical Services. Now, Wired Magazine deserves the credit for digging up a copy of this letter. It says that for a decade, for more than a decade, they have allowed federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies to mine the details of Americans' telephone calls, analyzing the phone records of countless people who are not suspected of any crime, including the victims of crime. Using a technique known as chain analysis, the program targets not only those in direct phone contact with a criminal suspect, but anyone with whom those individuals have been in contact as well. So in, in other words, your entire phone directory. Records show that the White House has, for the past decade, provided more than $6 million to the program. It began, by the way, in 2013, so that would have been during Barack Hussein Obama, which allows the targeting of any calls that use AT&T's infrastructure, which is a maze of routers and switchers that crisscross the United States. The program, formerly known as Hemisphere, is run in coordination with the private company AT&T and grants law enforcement agencies access to this huge database. And now even Democrats are concerned that the privacy of Americans is being invaded, and that includes a lot of Americans who are not even suspected of committing a crime. Let's go to uh, Billy. Hey, Billy, welcome to the program. And if you want to join in, it's 866-HEY-LARS or 866-439-5277. What's on your mind, Billy? Well... I call you every year on this date, so you know I am calling. <laughs> uh, is it about the JFK assassination? Absolutely. I was in Dallas that day. Very good. And what, 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 what conclusion, after all these decades, should we draw about who or what actually led to the assassination of President Kennedy? I would say, personal opinion, it, it was a hit, and uh, there's plenty of suspects. 
But it was, no, no, but you dodged the question. We know it was a hit. He was assassinated. Yeah. He didn't do it to himself. Of course it was a hit. But was the hit That's because true. he threatened the military-industrial complex, because he threatened the intelligence community, because JFK was a big critic of the CIA and the other intelligence agencies, which have now shown themselves to be highly weaponized and politicized organizations. So who do you think called, made the deed happen? I think the mob. You think the mob? I think hmm. the mob did it because of the the characters. Uh, Ruby had a lot of connections. Ruby had connections to Russia too. Was that part of it? Uh, could have uh, not been. Ruby, but but Oswald did. Oswald, yeah, Oswald. Okay, well, interesting. Thank you very much. Let's go to Linda. Hey, Linda, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Um, I was calling about uh, some of that math you were having trouble with earlier with the uh, teachers and the 36 students in a class versus the 26 average. That was uh, a little confusing. Well, Linda, when you look at any school district in America, especially the larger ones, the smaller <laughs> ones are not as bad, but in the larger ones, the majority of people who work for a K-12 through public school run by the government and usually failing the kids, have less than half of their total employees actually as teachers and then of that number only a portion uh, percentage of the teachers they have actually teach classes why should Americans tolerate that if the if the goal is education why don't we have the majority of the, the uh, employees of any school district be teachers and have virtually every single one of them teaching some of the kids well, first of all, both sides are, are playing those numbers on you. The teachers' unions are emphasizing the largest of those class sizes, and the districts are emphasizing the smallest numbers they can. The, there are a lot of class sizes that are very small because they're special needs classes, so they have like five or six kids. There's are resource classes. There's... Um, there's occupational therapists that count as teachers and work with kids one-on-one. -on -one. And then there's a sliding scale where you have kindergarten classes that are 15 and high school classes that are 35. So the district averages in all those numbers and says, hey, look, our class sizes are only average to be 24. Then where then the should the number be? Says, where, where should the number be? And because I understand averages can be very deceptive. If I went, uh, if I went to a uh, home and, and stuck my head in the freezer and my feet in the oven, my average temperature would still be ninety-eight point six. <laughs> but but I wouldn't be doing very well. So so when those averages are deceptive, how do you get to a number? And and by the way, all the studies I've ever read, academic studies done by liberal universities, have said until you get class sizes down to ten or twelve. Class size really doesn't matter. The difference between a class of 20 or a class of 25 is almost negligible. Um, not necessarily true. I mean, I've got classes that are 30, and they are very hard just because you don't even have room to move around a classroom. If you can't, like, get to a student in the back of your classroom without stumbling over every backpack on the way, uh, it's really hard to personally help every student in your classroom. Well, that sounds like to. bad management, doesn't it, Linda? You went to college. If you're a teacher, you went to you went to college, right? Yes, I did. And when you took history of Western civilization, let me guess: was it in an auditorium big enough to hold three or four hundred people? <laughs> yes. 
Okay, because I remember taking that class. And and you say now, did they build every single classroom at 300? Or did they build some classrooms that were big enough for 12 people and some for 30 and some for 50 and some for 500? Because they actually sized the thing. They didn't, they didn't treat kids like widgets or teaching or education. They said, we need different sized classrooms. How often do you find different sized classrooms in a K-12 badly managed public school? Oh, we don't because they are very badly managed. We yeah, also and, stop. And I would, I would go for, for I would kick the management have... in the backside. But should, let me ask you this question. Would you agree? That when half the kids in many public schools can't meet the minimums in reading, writing, and math, that the public schools are failing kids. Absolutely, I would be. I would be all for a charter system if we could get it voted in, because we need to get rid of age-based learning. We got to stop saying you were born on this date, so this is the grade yeah. you should be in, regardless of what your capability is. And, Linda, my latest favorite example is Mississippi, which used to be dead last in America. They are now in the middle of America, and they're headed for the top, and they're actually beating the more well-funded blue states. And do you know how they're doing it? They erected what they call a third-grade gate. If when you get to third grade, if the, if the scores show you're not ready for fourth grade, you are held back. But you're not just held back. You're given tutoring to bring you up to speed so when you hit fourth grade, you can actually handle fourth grade material. Do you think every school ought to do that? Yes, I do. I, yeah. I teach seventh grade mathematics, and I have students who do not know their basic facts. And that doesn't make any sense at all. Linda, great naysayer, and thank you very much for the call. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Uh, no, I'm not going to do what are you thankful for this year. I, I think we've had enough of that. Frankly, I think we all have a lot to be thankful for. One of the best is that we live in the freest country on the planet. And if a naysayer wants to uh, contend with me on that, I'd love to hear which nation has greater freedom than the United States of America. You've got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Small town politics with big town opinions. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to take your calls. You know, the uh, White House under Joe Biden has said that they're using every federal agency they can to try to push their agenda. And one of those agendas is gender ideology. So they're incorporating just about every agency they can, including the Census Bureau. And the guy who knows more about that than I do is Mike Gonzalez. He's senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation, author most recently of the book BLM, The Making of a New Marxist Revolution. Mike, welcome back. Hey, uh, Lars. I hope you're going to have a great Thanksgiving tomorrow. Thanks we have a great now. Thanksgiving plan, and I hope the same for you and yours. Uh, yeah, no, they, you know, the, the use of the Census Bureau in this kind of work <clears throat> has been a key. And the Census Bureau actually has taken a lead and as the agency that, that really not only divides America, uh, the most now, but is the one that makes this, these divisions official. Uh, and, and, and they began doing this in 1980 on, along racial lines. Uh, when the uh, when the activists came to the federal government, the federal bureaucracy, and said we need you to create new categories 
and we needed to create a category for for people with Spanish surnames and people from the Americans uh, with origin in the Asian continent. And the census created two artificial categories in Hispanic and Asian Americans, things that are not cohesive, they're not monolithic, they're, they're not even racial. Um, and then those, those things were put in the census in 1980, and now it's, it's trying to move on to the other dimension, which is sex. Uh, sexual orientation and gender identity, and that is is going to try to do that and and officialize it, you know, stamp it with the imprimatur of the federal government, so so then it becomes a, a real actual federal thing. Mike, is it legal? Let's start just start with whether or not the uh, the, the the legislation that actually authorized the creation of the Census Bureau to carry out what the Constitution requires. Is it legal for the Census Bureau to be asking those questions? It's actually a very interesting question. Uh, it's, it's, it's the, sex, the Census Bureau has always asked uh, about African Americans, and I've always asked about white Americans. The, the, the new additions were in, the, in 1980 with Hispanics and Asian Americans. So, so yes, it would be legal because it's done it. It's done it's on races since the 17, since the first census in 1790. Um, what was new in, in, in 1980 was the creation of two ethnicities that were very diffused, right? Asian Americans are people who come from, from the Indian subcontinent, from Pakistan, but also from, from China, Korea, Japan, or from the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, people who are very disparate. The same thing with Hispanics. They can be of any race. Can, Hispanics can be white, can be black can be Asian and they can, or anything in between. Uh, so, 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 so that was really the new thing that it, it, it had these creations. But the, the, the reason why it created Hispanics and Asian Americans was to fit them in this narrative that we have finally become aware of as a nation of the oppressed versus the oppressor. And it wanted to, from the, from the beginning of the creation of Hispanics and Asian Americans, they were fit into that category of victims. Uh, and, and it will be the same thing with the Soji categories. You will have the, 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 the non, the, the, the victimhood categories versus the heteronormative. In other words, normal heterosexual Americans, because heteronormative is a, is a term of the left. Uh, uh, will be seen as the oppressor category, and and the other ones will be seen as depressed. Well, but we Mike, I, how... I know I know they've done that for a long time, but I guess what I'm wondering is, do they have any legal authority to actually do it? Which seems to be a different question. There are lots of things that have always been that way, and then we said, hey, nobody had a legal right to do it this way. And nobody bothered to ask. I'm just wondering if the Census Bureau has the legal authority to just invent whatever questions or categories it wants to invent. Yeah, I mean, in asking Congress for $10 million to, to refine a question uh, so, so that Americans will buy into, will, will accept the division of America into social categories, I guess that would give it a, a, the, legal, the, the legal right to do that. But just because it, it is legal doesn't mean it is right. I think uh, Congress should deny this money. Congress should refuse to pay for this. Marco Rubio, Senator Marco Rubio, Florida, and J.D. Vance of Ohio, have already told the census that no, they, they, they shouldn't be using, they shouldn't be creating these SOGI categories. 
they should not be further dividing the, the, the nation. <clears throat> and in their letter, I think Mark Rubio and J.D. Vance, uh, the two senators, were, were right in saying that, 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 that this would, would, would spread, this would promote the falsehood that sex is assigned at birth. Uh, that is a an, an, an unscientific, a you know that's, that's just that that's that's a fallacy. Sex happens at conception. Yep. You know, sex happens at fertilization, if you will. If the sperm and it's genetically and Mike, it's genetically defined. I mean, it's not as though you say, "Well, you were born with this." So if I was born with three ears, you'd say, "Well, that's not normal." Cut one of those ears off. But but it, you know, the the definition of who you are sexually is in your DNA. Which, which I don't care right. how, you know, what kind of clothing you wear or what you call yourself, whether you call yourself Susie or not, uh, you're, you're not a girl. Uh, you're, you're, because your, your DNA says otherwise. Right. And that's what the, letter, the senator said in the letter. They said, this is just a matter of choice, a matter of a, a, a lifestyle. This is not a, a category that should be defined in the census. You know, there are many identities. Uh, that are very important to people. I don't know what religion you are. I happen to be a Roman I, Catholic. I happen to be a, a Protestant Christian. So, right, and, and that's not in the census. So when the census says, "Well, people are not finding themselves in the census," that's just that—that that is a canard. I, I'm, I, there's no question in the census whether I'm a Roman Catholic or a Jewish American or an Episcopalian, and this doesn't mean I'm not finding myself. Uh, you know that is just ridiculous. It's an excuse to add victim categories. Well, and the funny thing is that usually discrimination has been discrimination law has been based on immutable characteristics. If I sat in a wheelchair and was unable to walk, I'm a paraplegic. Now, I can't change that. I don't choose it. I can't unchoose it. It's there. You know, I can be a Republican. I can be a conservative. I could be a God forbid a liberal or a Democrat. But but I can change that anytime I want. At what point did we start deciding that discrimination law could actually factor things that you're allowed to choose and change anytime you want? Well, they they, they want to redef they, they redefine Title Nine uh, to also include sexual identity. So it's not just the sex you were born with, the sex you were created with. It's also it's 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 sexual identity. Obviously, that is very wrong, <clears throat> and we need to fight this. And we need a new leader who could, to come in and to, uh, uh, you know in 2025. Uh, of the party, by the way, I don't care. But I mean, somebody who says enough with this, enough with this this, this collective hysteria. Let's stop dividing ourselves. <laughs> and, and Mike, have you have you found a Democrat yet who's willing to say that out loud? I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I last the thing is though that Republicans can be really bad on this. They're very afraid to talk about sex or race. It's stupid. You know, they, they, they uh, trust me, trust me to be. <laughs> you know, I, I talk to them a lot, and some of them are some of them are brave. You know, Rubio and JD Vance just filed this letter, but a lot of them are not willing to 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 fight these cultural battles that are so important to fight. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the gaming of the system, like that swimmer who just this week decided, hey, I swam as a guy for three years, didn't work out so well, became a girl, and all of a sudden I'm setting records because of choice. It's unbelievable. That's Mike Gonzalez. He's at the Heritage Foundation. His book is called BLM, The Making of a New Marxist Revolution. Back in a moment, I'll get to your calls. 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network.
wrapping the news so you don't have to. Back to the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Our Twitter poll today on this Wednesday, will citizens in Washington repeal Jay Inslee's expensive carbon tax scam? I believe that voters will do exactly that. Yesterday, we got word late in the day, 420,000 signatures, far more than they need to put it on the ballot next year, uh, to put on Initiative 2117, a measure to just simply repeal Jay Inslee's carbon cap and and trade law that is bringing in billions of dollars for government has no potential to reduce carbon dioxide at all and has raised the cost of gasoline at least 50 cents a gallon so you're paying more you're getting you're not getting anything for it so it's going to go on the ballot and finally citizens will be able to vote on it and that vote it, it, unless something happens and less than uh, three quarters of those signatures are confirmed that will be on the ballot next year. I believe that citizens will vote it down. You can vote any way you like at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Let's go first to Sam, listening on the Radio Northwest Network. Hey, Sam, what's on your mind today? Hi, how are you, Lars? Very well, sir. Thanks for asking. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. First, I'll start with uh, the most overused icebreaker. Uh, long-time listener, first-time <laughs> caller. Thank you for that. Yeah, and um, I agree with a lot of the things you say, but, uh, I mean, not everything. But I think that's a healthy thing to agree with a lot of things you say. Okay, but, but I uh, want one you to get I to like your to... point, Sam. Yes, uh, uh, and you can call me Sam Koo, please. Okay, Sam Koo. And, uh, yeah, yes, yeah. And uh, it's a term you use, alien. Yeah. I understand it's a lawful term. It is. It's, uh, it's a legal in term in yeah. the law for people who are in the country from a foreign country is, is, is alien. Is alien. Yeah, yes. That's the word. I agree. I agree. I'm an immigrant myself, but uh, I immigrated here illegally. I waited six years to bring my wife. I went through all the eyes and uh, all the process. But yeah. uh, I'm just saying, you know, like, if you can, uh, you also can see that it's a dehumanizing. No, but I don't know what your point right? is. Are you telling me you My don't want me to use the can, term yeah. illegal alien? Yeah, yeah, as, Why? yeah, as your listeners. Yeah, because no, but it's tell me, okay, then, uh, I'll tell you what, Sam, I'll entertain the idea. What term would you like to use for somebody who illegal, illegally invades illegal, my country? Illegal immigrant. No, what do you want to call that them? That would suffice. Yeah, illegal. An illegal, illegal Immigrant. Yes. Isn't that a contradiction in terms if you when you emigrated, you did it legally, right? Legally. Correct. OK. And and if you did it illegally, you want me to call you an immigrant, even though immigrant implies you want to become part of this country. Correct. Correct. OK. If you come to somebody's country and you say the first thing I'm going to do when I come to your country is violate your laws. Does that sound like a I'm legitimate not, yeah, immigrant? I'm not advocating for the activity because it, it affects no, everyone. No, but answer my question. Yeah. If the first thing, okay. if, if you called me a guest, if you invited me a guest in your home, and the first thing I did was walk out in the kitchen and take all your silver, all your dishes and throw them on the floor and break them, would I still be a guest in your home? Uh, no, you, you, you were a guest probably. But I was a guest uh, up to the I, point where I, I broke your rules. If I came in and yeah. insulted your wife or kicked your dog or whatever, you'd say, you're no longer a guest. And I, I say, no, hold on. I'm a guest. I'm just an, an undocumented guest in your home. 
because you've now said your permission to be in my home is gone. If somebody by their first actions breaks the laws of our country, why should we consider them an immigrant? It's the process. The, the pro the process? The well, I don't know what that means, Sam. What is the okay, process? You come to somebody Sorry. else's home, you break the rules, and then you say, but you still have to call me a guest in your home? No, it's different. This is different. Let me give you an example. How is it like, different? My home, okay. you have a right to invite people to your home and tell people, other people, you're not welcome to come to my home, right? Uh, yes. Do we as a country have a right to say, we decide who comes to our country and who does not? Do we have that right? 100%. Yes. Okay, I so mean, when like somebody said, breaks I'm, I'm the rules, why should I worry about hurting their feelings? It's not about feelings. This is well, a what is more it? reflection. I mean, it's like you could use a better term. That's what I'm saying. Because well, no, you the can't, can't give me a better term. Migrant, migrant yeah, is just somebody immigrant. who moves around. Uh, uh, an exactly. immigrant is yeah. somebody who that wants to become point. part of a... Isn't an immigrant somebody who wants to become part of a country? It's immigrant is somebody who's migrating from one place to another place. No, no. There's my... Uh, the look, I could... There are people who migrate from Alaska to the lower 48 every time the snow coats the mountains. They're migrants, but they're, they're doing it legally. When somebody comes into my country illegally, is the fact that they're moving around the most important thing or the fact that they are coming to my country intending to live there? I don't understand this question. But the fact that matters is what I'm trying to say is illegal immigrant will suffice. No, so it you're won't. trying to say, understand it's a lawful term. Uh, let me tell you, because I'm an immigrant, you know, most immigrants will find that offensive. I mean, Why? I know you're not all well, about that. Hold on, like, Sam, Sam I'm trying to wrap my head around this. You came here legally, but you want me to be yeah. polite? You want me to be polite to people who didn't do it legally? Why? Because it's a, you have a better term. Like, you, you know, like now these days, the term uh, first world, second world, third world is not, it's frowned upon. It's well, either, then what would you uh, call it instead? When, when you're in a, a modern industrialized country, you don't want to call it first world. What do you call it? Uh, developed nation. What do you call it? And the other one, you developed nation. Developed? And the other one, yes. Okay, interesting. Sam, thanks very much. Good naysayer, though. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. The Lars. Is the Lars Larson Show? Our beloved Republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Lars. No. Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. I almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you as we head up to Thanksgiving, and I'm always glad to get your phone calls. I'm thankful for those every single day. But I want you to consider something. We've got a Republican Party that's holding on to uh, some majority, not much, in the House of Representatives. And they've tried one House Speaker who promised he'd get back to regular order when it comes to passing budget bills so he could actually constrain spending. And that didn't happen. 
So now we've got a new House Speaker, and I'm wondering whether my friend, and he's been gone too long from the show, Cal Thomas, journalist, pundit, author, TV and radio commentator, he wears lots of hats, and one of the most widely syndicated columnists in America, and the author of a brand new book called A Watchman in the Night, what I've seen over 50 years of reporting on America. Cal, it's good to have you back. Thank you, Lars, for having me. So I'm glad to do that. I want your insight into this. We've got all these threats of government shutdowns one right after another and this just sounds like we're right back to the same old problem we had with continuing resolutions more ways to jack up the budget and spend more money we don't have right it's uh like what the mafia used to do in chicago you know they threatened to shut down your business if, if you didn't pay them a certain amount of money uh we know what needs to be cut the problem in washington is uh, as ronald reagan used to say the only proof of eternal life there is a government program it's easier to uh you know kill a vampire and the analogy is a good one because each uh, suck the lifeblood out of their host uh, I, everybody knows the major driver of debt is social security and medicare but yep. they will not solve it because they prefer for the issue. So I'm suggesting in a recent column that they start at the fringes. They start at the stuff that will outrage most people. For example, uh, the uh, $196 million for the International Fund for Ireland, which included expenditures for pony trekking centers and golf videos. $5.1 million to build a new golf course at Joint Base Andrews in Washington when there are already 19 military golf courses in the area. And then my personal favorite, the Pentagon and CIA hired psychics hoping they'd provide insight about various foreign threats. That cost us $11 million. I knew that was coming because uh, I had a premonition. <laughs> well, Cal, tell me this, though, and I'll add one to the list. The, the Pentagon just got $114 million to spend on DEI, you know, this diversity, equity, and inclusion. They're not interested in winning wars anymore. They're interested in being a social experiment. You're right. You, you could cut the things that people would give a damn about the least. So why do the Republicans lack the guts to do it? Because they, they, they fear what the Democrats and the media, but I repeat myself, uh, will say. Even if you try to cut the rate of increase in spending, not the actual reduction of spending, you are demagogued by the left as uncaring about the poor or the children or a bigot or one of various kinds of phobes. And it, it's just, it, it, you know, Margaret Thatcher used to say uh, the problem of socialism is you run out of other people's money. And as long as they're spending other people's money and not their own money, they're going to keep on doing it because it helps keep them in power. I think we need a complete audit from the top to the bottom of the federal government. I think we need to reform the Civil Service Commission. Uh, people get into government and they stay there forever, even if they're incompetent. It's almost impossible to fire anybody in the Civil Service in Washington, D.C. The federal government is the biggest employer in the nation. Uh, this shouldn't be. The founders wanted uh, government to be limited. They wanted uh, members of Congress to serve a couple of terms and then go home to real jobs. you got people staying 30 and 40 years who have never done a balance sheet, who don't know anything about running a business, and they stay there until they're practically carried out on a litter. You know, Cal, I've had a lot of people say we ought to have term limits for elected people. I said, I'd like to get term limits on the bureaucracy. And frankly, I know it can sometimes hurt a company when I see a private company has lost a key employee because they went to work for the competition. I actually think it forces companies to be competitive with their employees. And it also says 
Maybe we're better off. Maybe the new guy or gal who comes into the job actually brings something new, and that there, a little bit of churn is actually healthy for almost anybody. And yet, you're right. Well, the deep uh, the deep state exists because there is well, no churn in federal employment. Well, uh, the the bottom line is it's our fault. We're the ones who elect these people, and, and if we don't like it, if we don't like the outcome, if we don't like the thirty-three trillion dollar debt, if we don't like the open border, if we don't like the loss of a shared sense of moral values and right and wrong, then elect people who believe and will vote differently. It's very simple in a constitutional republic, but it's the old definition of insanity: electing the same people and expecting different outcomes. Then what do you do when you've got parties, including the GOP, that effectively protect those, you know, go along, get along, keep the system the same? They don't seem to want to have dramatic change. And when I, as a voter, walk in and pick up my ballot, I'm unfortunately in a vote-by-mail place, which means that, uh, you know, that Washington State has had vote-by-mail for a couple of decades. It's been a disaster. But when I'm told these are your choices, it's like walking into a restaurant saying, I want salmon, and they've only got steak and chicken on the menu. I'm not getting salmon. So if I, if I, if I want somebody new and the parties refuse to let us have somebody new, what do we do then? Well, there's always the talk of the third party, and you're, you're going to get uh, more, I think, for third party candidates in this race than perhaps uh, we've ever had before. Who will be hurt the most by that, I don't know. But no third party has ever prevailed. Uh, I think we need a reform of the entire system. The primary system followed the old smoke-filled room where the professional politicians named their presidential candidates. Uh, that was done away with because it was thought that the people ought to have that uh, ultimate power. The problem is, in primary races, you get the extreme candidates on both sides, Republican and Democrat. And by the time, as you say, you show up at the general election, you're forced to to uh, choose between the lesser of two evils. And the, even though the overwhelming number of uh, people, according to the polls, don't want either Biden or Trump, again, that looks like what we're going to get. I'm talking to Cal Thomas. Of course, you've seen his name everywhere. He's a widely syndicated columnist in his most recent book, A Watchman in the Night, what I've seen over 50 years of reporting on America. So, Cal, do you feel like you're writing the history of the new Rome where we're going to go to bread and circuses and, 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 and our ultimate demise? Well, I wrote an earlier book, uh, Lars, called America's Expiration Date. And, I read it. Uh, it was it was, thank you. It was based, you're the one reader, thank you. Uh, I, it was based on an essay by the late British diplomat Sir John Glove, and he studied 3,000 years of human history and found out there were common denominators to the decline and destruction of great nations and superpowers. One was massive national debt. We've got a $33 trillion debt and counting. No nation has been able to sustain itself forever with that kind of debt. Number two, an open border. Lack of uh, assimilation uh, with uncontrolled immigration. And then number three, a loss of a shared moral value system. Either any one of those has been enough to bring a nation down. We've got all three going at the same time. What makes us think we can enjoy uh, the, to escape the, uh, the judgment of history, much less the judgment of God? Absolutely well said. The book is called The Watchman in the Night, what I've seen over 50 years of reporting on America. Cal, it's always great to have you on the program. Thank you for your time. Happy Thank Thanksgiving. You, you too. Bye-bye. Take care now. We'll be back in just a moment. I want to get to your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Coming up in a moment, America's military gone woke under Joe Biden's bed for the unjabbed to come back to the military. We'll get to that and your phone call next on the Lars Larson Show. 
kid from school and apologize for everything, apologize for you. Oh, Jesus, what happened to us? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I thought it was a travesty when America's military told people in uniform, if you don't take the jab, we're going to push you out of the military altogether. And in some cases, they were pushing people out of the military who had already served long and well-performing careers in the military. And they were very close to simply retiring. And instead, they got the bums rush out the door because they wouldn't take the jab. I'll tell you the details on that and what the military is now doing in just a moment. But first, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. If you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's here every day at 8 Hey, Lars. And if you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find the question every day, a brand new one every day, at Lars Larson Show on Twitter or X, if you want to call it that, uh, or on our website at LarsLarson.com. But first, I want to go to some of your calls because this is the time of year when we're reminded of the anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, a, officially a Democrat, but by today's standards, uh, the Democrats wouldn't have anything to do with him. He brought about some of the biggest tax decreases in American history. Uh, he also was a strong military man, had actually served in the military, and believed that there were dangers posed by both our intelligence community and by uh, a military-industrial complex as well. Uh, let me go first to Gordon in Seattle. Hey, Gordon, thanks for listening, and uh, what's on your mind today? I take it you want to talk about uh, the assassination of JFK. Yes, uh, i got a couple things to say about it. The first one is I could prove to a Texas jury that he was not shot from the depository because any hunter or anybody who's been in combat knows the exit hole is always bigger than the entrance hole, so he was shot underneath his chin which means he was probably shot by one of his own, uh, quote, security people. And uh, and that's why Jacqueline Kennedy w was going off the back of the vehicle. It wasn't to pick up his brains. It was just to get away from the shooter. That, that's a reasonably good theory. But, Gordon, why do you suppose, why do you suppose the cover-up, and there, there are some great documentaries about the the inconsistencies and inaccuracies of the entire investigation an investigation that should have been as rock solid as any investigation we're ever done and yet even the bullet itself that sits in the archive identified as the bullet that killed president kennedy uh there are reasons to believe that's not the bullet because it's a bullet that's entirely unmarked and unarmed and as you said if you're a hunter and you say what happens when a bullet enters uh, any an, either an animal or a human and hits bone or hits other structures, it usually, it, at very least, makes marks on the bullet. Usually it causes the bullet to change its entire shape. And and yet all of these things have been put to bed for a long time. And uh, and I'd, I'd honestly like, I'd like to know, why was he assassinated? I, Who were the people behind it? What was I, I the can, motivation? I, I, I and what were they trying to erase? I can give you a reason for it. Okay. It was his, his brother who was the attorney general, was sweating Billy Robert Paul. Robert F. Kennedy. Yes, and that was why he, he, was, the, he was the next target. And I'll, 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 I can give you a reason to believe that Saran Saran wasn't the one who actually shot him. But and, anyway. And, uh, uh, why but would it, we, it, and now it, that, it, one's, that one's a tougher <laughs> case to make because, you know, who, who then shot him if it wasn't Sirhan Sirhan? 
Okay, well, I'll, uh, let me give you some serious well, evidence. Well, don't do too much background because I want to get grab some other calls. There are people waiting, but tell me okay. quickly, why Why not? Well, well, because his brother was putting the, the, the sweat on Billy Saul Estes, and Billy Saul Estes was part of the Texas Mafia, which John Conley and, and LBJ were also members of the, of the Texas Mafia. That's number one. Number two, having to do with uh, his, his brother, uh, Somebody took a part of the bullet that actually killed him and did a neutron activation analysis on it. And it was made by the same company that, uh, that oh, God, Saran Saran and, 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 his, and his pistol. Uh, it was, it, it, the ammunition was made by the same company, but it came from a different lot number. And one thing yeah. that that the uh, but what does that prove but what does that do. prove Gordon? well it proved that somebody else actually shot him instead of saran saran okay and and i'll tell you what i the i think the conspiracy theories go on endlessly and sadly i i doubt americans will ever actually get the real truth behind it let's go to bob hey bob welcome to the lars larson show what's on your mind uh, thank you lars um well, it's just that uh, I think it was a combination of the military and the syndicate. And uh, so the reason is, if you remember that uh, DM was assassinated just before John F. Kennedy. So that's the president of South Vietnam. And uh, and so and I, at, that, that, at, that, at that time, I lived in Gary, Indiana as well. And right after uh, he was elected at the hands of Bobby Kennedy, many high-level politicians were put in prison. And... Um, so anyway, it's just still, and... Uh, well, I guess I wonder, Bob, nobody's bringing up the CIA, even though the CIA has a very uh, questionable, uh, had a very questionable role in what happened and in covering up what happened. But but nobody seems to mention the CIA, even though that seems to be the kind of agency that would have the wherewithal to pull that off. Sure, sure. And, and I think they were probably involved in it. Uh, and but again, I think there was a lot of people that were mad at him because he was going to cost a lot of people. I don't think that him and DM DM wanted us in Vietnam to the extent that we were there. No, so and of course Johnson immediately escalated that war, a war begun by Harry Truman by sending advisors, and then increased uh, under Kennedy, and then really escalated under Johnson uh, to to yeah. a lot of bloodshed uh, and 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 a real mess for the United States of America. Bob, thanks very much. I appreciate the call. Speaking of the military, i got to share this with you. About a week ago, I had somebody send me a copy of the letter that he got as a military veteran who had been pushed out unceremoniously from the United States military because he refused to take the mRNA shot that I called the jab. You know, the one that doesn't actually stop you from getting COVID, uh, doesn't appear to stop you necessarily from dying of COVID. And I, you know, in the, in the light of full disclosure or in, 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 in the aim of full disclosure, I haven't taken the jab. I chose not to, but many members of the military were pushed out simply because they wouldn't take the jab. Well, guess what's happening now? The Air Force is sending out letters saying, we'd like you to come back to your service. We'll correct your record. Please come back to work for us. This is the desperate situation that the U.S. military finds itself in. It can't maintain its recruiting. It can't maintain its numbers. And as a result, uh, America's weakened military, just as America may in fact face some new challenges from both China and elsewhere on the planet. And what's happening? 
We have people who've been kicked out of the service, uh, kicked out because they wouldn't take the COVID-19 vaccine. The vaccine mandate has now been erased. And now the military can't find enough people to serve. And frankly, under Joe Biden, between the DEI, CRT, and all the other woke nonsense, transgender, ridiculous nonsense that is being pushed on the military, and now they can't find enough people who want to serve in uniform, so they're begging people who are unjabbed to come back and please go back into uniform. This is what's happening under the current commander-in-chief, and he needs to be held to account. Back in just a moment. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. The Lars Larson Show. Portland. You can literally have Lars with you all day, every day. Podcasts at Spotify, Apple, SoundCloud, and live right now. What a time to be alive. Here's Lars. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I always like talking to our friend Christian Toto about movies and popular culture. Christian, of course, is the host of the Hollywood and Toto podcast. Christian, I hope you're planning a wonderful holiday weekend. It's going to be low-key, it's going to be small in scale, and that's perfectly okay with me. And will politics be forbidden at the dinner table? You know, it's funny, my wife and I have different political views, but we will not be discussing that. That's for sure. <laughs> we've managed this long in our marriage without, without going there, especially on a holiday, so I think we're pretty good at avoiding that topic. See, I don't think anybody should be a jerk, but I don't think there's anything wrong. If somebody brings up something political, if you didn't want me to talk about politics, don't bring up political subjects. But speaking of politics, what just happened to Susan Sarandon, who I would have thought was a, you know, a Hollywood staple, uh, very well established, and all of a sudden she's being canceled to some extent, and, and maybe for a good reason, I think in her case, I would agree with them getting rid of her. United Talent Agents Agency just dropped her, but would you explain what happened? Yeah, you know, there's been a lot of interesting stories behind the scenes at Hollywood Inc. these days, looking at the divide about Israel and Hamas and the Palestinian situation. And there have been some players behind the scenes, some actors, some producers saying things that are pretty shocking and others saying things that seem pretty reasonable. So that's sort of the, that's the, the context here. But she's been, uh, Sarandon has been going to these pro-Palestinian events and saying some things that really do make you scratch your head, like, what is she thinking? And I, I want to steer people to the direct source, because I'm not going to get it exactly right, but it was something akin to now the Jewish people know what Muslim Americans feel like when they're in, you know, when they're in America, essentially. Again, go find the exact quote. The exact no, I'll comment. tell you what, I'll give you the exact quote, because, Christian, okay. I've, I've gotten really tired of news stories that say, so-and-so is being fired or disciplined or whatever because they said something awful. And I say, okay, what'd they say? I mean, not yeah. out of some kind of purian interest, but just saying, okay, what was it that they said that it was so awful? Because you realize after you find out some of these things, you say, you mean they criticized illegal aliens and called them illegal aliens? Okay, I say that too. So you got fired for that? She said that uh, there are people who are afraid of being Jewish at this time. That's one quote. And the second quote, and I think this is the one that, that got her fired uh, as, a, as a client of United Talent Agency, 
They're getting a taste of what it feels like to be a Muslim in this country so often subjected to violence. That just sounds uninformed to me. Yeah, that was the biggest, my biggest takeaway. It's just, frankly, dumb. It's just really dumb. So, you know, it's been fascinating to see this all go down the last 24, 48 hours, in part because I think there's going to be, I think we're already seeing a, a, hey, maybe this cancel culture stuff isn't so good. And I think we've been seeing that in recent weeks because a lot of people have said some really terrible things are being canceled, are losing gigs, are, you know, being forced out of their jobs. And all of a sudden, people on the left are thinking, wow, this maybe this environment isn't healthy for a society. Now, I'm torn here because I'm a free speech guy, but, you know, what she said was pretty gross and pretty dumb, like I just mentioned before. So, I, I, you know, I think it's a case-by-case scenario, but it is interesting. And, I, you know, if you dig into some of the stories, some of the people behind the scenes are doing some things that are even worse, saying things even worse. There was one... Uh, actor slash director who wanted that you know the screening in hollywood a few days ago of the atrocities that were captured by the hamas uh terrorists yep they, they screened that in hollywood they want people in the industry to know what's happening what happened what the stakes are and this individual and i want i want to steer people to the stories themselves was against that said this is just propaganda no it's really what happened it's really important for that to be out there and and to want it uh, squelched is disgusting. I think. See, and, and yeah, it's funny, Christian. Like a friend of mine, a friend of mine, called me up and said they're screening these, but for you know we're gonna they're gonna do it for a select group. And I said, do you want to see? And I said, you know, actually, no. Uh, I know what was done. Uh, do I need the graphic representation of what was done? I mean, I think there have been times in in American history where when we saw when the movies came back from the death camps after World War II, when there were documentaries about a Rwandan uh, you know uh, famine, uh, that they brought things to people's attention and made them realize things were happening. I don't think I need to see the pictures of what was actually done to people on October 7th to understand the import and the magnitude of what was done. And I think sometimes that that does appeal, appeal to the prurient interest, say, hey, do you want to see the picture of it happening? Well, in some cases, that will bring people to realize things that they didn't realize before. I don't think we need that. But I think it was it was worthwhile to say to journalists, if you want to you know, suggest this was no big deal. Or And there are people out there. In, in fact, I got a caller yesterday who said, well, you know, they've exaggerated what happened. It wasn't 1,400 <laughs> dead. It was 1,200. And I literally said, oh, why didn't you say so? 1,200 dead, then it's no big deal, right? You know, that they only yeah. baked kids in microwaves in some cases or cut their heads off. Well, it wasn't that bad. I can't believe anybody actually says those things. It has been shocking to live through the last month or ha and a half to see this. And by the way, the person I was referencing is Boots Riley. He did a film called Sorry to Bother You. I don't know a ton about him, but he was the one who called the footage I mentioned murderous propaganda. Murderous Murders. propaganda. And then, and then said that Israeli officials, when they're at the Hague for war crimes, you won't want your name or image to have been anywhere near it. And I just think, and he has not been fired, by the way, which I think is far grosser than anything Susan Sarandon. I, I think Susan Sarandon should be arrested by the dopey police, honestly. <laughs> well, and, and in this case, she we say she got fired. She was represented by United Talent Agency, and to some extent, I admire what they did. They said, what you said is so far out of line, we don't want to represent you anymore. So they weren't her employer. Mm -hmm. They were her representative to sell her talents to other people in Hollywood. So they took a loss by, by shedding what was probably a fairly lucrative client for them. And, and maybe... 
uh, maybe with an advantage to UTA and maybe not, uh, because I don't know if, you know, if some of their other, uh, you know, you know, potential clients would say, oh, I want to be represented by you because you took a, a principled stand and said, we're no longer willing to be your representative. But they at least had to suffer some damage. She can always go off and be represented by somebody else. And I'm sure there'll be plenty of people lining up to represent her because representing a, you know, an established Hollywood star it will make you a lot of money. Yeah, and just another quick note. There's an actress, Melissa Barrera, and she was in the last Scream movie. She's just a yeah. talented person. She was fired from the next Scream film, and the very next day, under similar circumstances, but the very next day, one of the bigger stars of that film, Jenny Ortega, Jenna Ortega, she left the project, and they mentioned that, well, she had a scheduling conflict. Really? <laughs> I think, you know, to her credit or discredit, I think she quit the project because her co colleague, was I'm gonna guess unfairly fired in her estimation, but you know, that's the that's the spin you put out if you're her, you know, management team. Oh, you know, she had a she had a conflict. Oh, we just learned that today, even though the other actress was fired yesterday. I'm not buying that at all. No, why why not be honest about it? Say if if I'm leaving because of this, then be honest. Tell the public why you're leaving. Otherwise, your your departure really doesn't send much of a message. It's like you want to get credit within a close circle of friends for having done the right thing, but you don't want the general public to know why you did it. Uh, I don't know. There were plenty of people, Christian, that I thought during the pandemic, uh, people in the medical field who should have stood up for their colleagues and said, you can't fire these people just because they won't take the jab. And a lot of, and most of them are still working in the field. And I want to ask them, well, why didn't you stand up? for these colleagues who made their own personal medical decisions. And uh, sadly, those are the people who still have jobs and the others do not. Christian, it's always a pleasure to have you. I, I hope you have a wonderful holiday. Thank you, too. You bet. That's Christian Toto, the, ho the host of HollywoodandToto.com. That's the podcast. I'm glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show. And you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. I'll give you a couple of thoughts on D.B. Cooper coming up next. Since we're on that anniversary as well. Show. By the way, we've been watching the border between the United States and Canada from a distance, of course, but near Niagara, the border crossing between uh, the between Canada and New York. We've been watching it because there were reports of an explosion. There were reports of a car that might have had explosives on board. Now they've actually looked into some of the video. And again, this is just in a few hours time. <laughs> there was a car that was traveling at about 100 miles an hour. And it flew over a curb and a barrier and went airborne for a short uh, stretch before it hit a giant concrete pylon and and burst into flames. And they said exploded. Well, when you've got gallons of gasoline on board, that's not a huge surprise. But surveillance footage shows the car flying over the curb and the barrier at the U.S.-Canada border at Niagara in New York. 
and uh, and and basically burst into flames. Two people uh, were told were told were are dead in the car, uh, but no explosives at this point. And so far, the official version is that there's no sign that any of this was a terrorist act because there was footage that showed the car traveling at high speeds before it got airborne near the border and then hit this giant concrete pylon and exploded and burned. So as we get details, we'll share them with you. There's something I do almost every year around Thanksgiving. And it's because the anniversary of the D.B. Cooper skyjacking actually happened on the 24th of November. And you might or might not remember the details. But a man who was dressed in a suit and sunglasses got on a commercial airline flight in Portland. And he bought a ticket back in those days. You didn't go through TSA. And you could actually buy a ticket with cash. So he bought a ticket for cash. I think it was about... 50 bucks uh, to fly to Seattle. And on the way, he handed the flight attendant a note and said, I've got a bomb. And he was hijacking the plane, skyjacking, they called it back then, November 24, 1971. And ever since then, there's been a cottage industry of who was D.B. Cooper. And I've been telling you for the better part of the last 30 years that we know who D.B. Cooper was because he not only did that skyjacking, but he did a second skyjacking. You say, well, Lars, how do you know about that one? Because he got caught on that one, got caught red-handed with the money on the second skyjacking, and his name was Richard McCoy. He was then put on trial. He was convicted. He was sent off to federal prison. He managed to escape from federal prison at least once, maybe twice, uh, but was eventually killed in a shootout with the police after he started robbing banks. His name was Richard McCoy, and he was the real D.B. Cooper. Now, can I take credit for that theory? No. I have to give credit to two men. I believe they both passed away, but I interviewed them back in the 90s. Uh, and they had great credentials, Bernie Rhodes and Russ Callum. And one of them was a federal parole and probation officer out of Utah, out of Salt Lake City, Utah. The other one was the SAC, the special agent in charge of the Utah office of the FBI, back in the day when perhaps you could trust the FBI. And I interviewed both of these men. And what they tell is the story that Richard McCoy was this uh, guy who was, didn't have a lot of money. He was married. He was going to school uh, in, in Utah. And he was studying to be a cop. He was also a guy who had experience as a paratrooper. His military experience was as a paratrooper, so he had experience. He was also taking skydiving lessons. And their theory was that what Richard McCoy did was he left Provo, Utah, and drove to Las Vegas, Nevada, a few hours away, uh, bought a ticket to Portland, got off the plane in Portland. There was no real record. Then he walks up to the counter, tells the person behind the counter, I want to buy a ticket to Seattle. My name is Dan Cooper. That's actually the name he used. He never used the term D.B. Cooper. That was apparently a misprint in some of the news media coverage, and it stuck with him. But he used the name Dan Cooper on the ticket. He gets on the plane. He skyjacks the plane. He demands $200,000 and, uh, and extra parachutes. And then as the plane flies, they'd let most of the passengers, most of the flight crew get off. As it flies back to Portland, he lowers the rear stairs on the airplane and bails out and then disappears. Never been found, although some of the money was found. And their theory fits that as well, because on the first skyjacking, the D.B. Cooper skyjacking, I'll use the, the term uh, because, you know, that's what people commonly call him, even though the name on the ticket was Dan. Um, 
He bails out, but he didn't have a duffel bag for the money. So he took apart one of the parachutes on the plane and put the money in a big tied-up piece of parachute silk. Uh, their theory is that got away from him, that he tried to tie it to a belt, and when he bailed out, he lost some of the money, but not all the money. Well, Richard McCoy turned up back in Provo, Utah, with thousands of dollars, which he spent in the month of December. Now, this is a guy who was notoriously poor. His friends thought he didn't have he didn't have two nickels to rub together. He was going to school on the GI Bill. His wife was a social worker, didn't make much money. So he pulled a second skyjacking, and both of them happened on holidays that colleges recognize, meaning you wouldn't be missed in class if you weren't in class on, say, Thanksgiving weekend or, in the case of the second one, Easter weekend. Except on the second one, he skyjacked the plane. It flew from uh, uh, from Las Vegas to San Francisco, and on the and, and he skyjacked the plane, demanded five hundred thousand dollars and a duffel bag. In other words, the second skyjacking was almost a carbon copy of the first one, except it had a number of improvements to details the FBI had not released to the public. On that one, he bailed out. He got the money to his home in Utah, and one of his friends turned him in, said, I know who the guy is. It's Richard McCoy. And sure enough, they caught him. They charged him. They convicted him. He sent him to prison. He escaped, was robbing banks when he got in a shootout with the FBI, and Richard McCoy died. D.B. Cooper was really...